Welcome back to Escaping Gilead. This is for the third episode of the fifth season of Hulu's The Handmaid's Tale. This is Paul. This is Caroline. And this episode was called Border. Paul, we've been getting some pretty good feedback lately from some of our listeners. I got one who is describing the fact that she continued to rewind portions of what we were saying <laughs> because they were cracking her up. Any particular portion? It was some scene that she said she was listening to and it was like I was describing someone in the hospital and I was doing my arms like chicken arms. She said she could, I had guess I had told you guys I was doing that, which is hilarious and weird. And, and then I kept going, no! <laughs> She said she just keeps her whining and like cracks her up. So thank you listeners for that kind of feedback. That gives us a big smile on our faces. It's always good to hear. We also love it when you head over to Apple, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you listen to your stuff. Give us some five-star reviews. That always makes us smile as well. Paul. Yes. This week, Border. Border. What do you think? I was happy that they picked up right exactly where we left off because... There was such like a shocker cliffhanger moment there. I didn't I didn't need to like get away from that. Like I thought it was a pretty amazing tension filled second that we left on last time. I mean, that's one of the hugest signature moments. Hugest. Of the whole, that's really big. Yeah. Of the whole series. Yeah. Um, I, it was to me. It was like the pinnacle of what we were all waiting for. Right. It was like the Serena, June, Hannah. Eh. Yeah. Well, we thought Fred, though. See, that was the double whammy. Knowing that. The show only has one more season. You start to kind of mentally arrange the chessboard to be like, how is this going to end up? Because, you know, we've asked ourselves, can they possibly topple Gilead in that amount of time? Is that even the goal? Is that even possible? Is that a kind of outcome that that would be reasonable? Or is it going to be these women having some sort of big throwdown over the fate of Hannah? And that's really the battle that we need to win here. Because that's where we started. Taking Hannah started the whole thing. That's exactly right. We have asked a lot of our listeners and on our Facebook group, if you guys aren't over on uh, Welcome to Gilead, The Handmaid's Tale group. We have like 42,000 members, I think, these days. Come on over there and check it out. We've talked a lot about what equals a successful ending to the show. They've said that there's going to be season six, but then that's going to be it. But now... Just recently, we have the confirmation that there is indeed going to be a spinoff based on the Testaments with Anne Dowd playing Aunt Lydia and then having a Hannah character and having a Nicole character. Which is pretty wild stuff. I mean, to me, it seems like a lot of people die of our group. Maybe Serena, maybe, you know, June, everybody, they could all die. And you have like next generation, like you have Hannah being the Gilead representation and you have... Nicole on the outside having these these crazy roots between both outside Gilead but her father's inside Gilead like you've got some really wild characters with some complex backgrounds the testaments is a redemption story and it will be tough to figure out how you would get to the beginning of the testaments from where the show is do you think they have to i mean we still have another season and uh you know like a half to kind of bridge the gap. So, I mean, we could have a time jump in season six. You'd have to. Right. Because, I mean. The girls get much older. They would have to. That's how time works. <laughs> but there would, um, some of the characters that we know and, and love are not in that story, not represented in any way. 
such that big changes would have to happen. Yeah, but I think we're ready for that, right? I mean, listeners, I mean, I think we're ready for some big changes to happen here. And I know that this is definitely a setting the table episode where we kind of are moving our pieces in place to start really like launching. I mean, we're already halfway through the season. So we know that episode four has to be wild, right? It's the mid-season. <laughs> so it has to be crazy, right? So this one is a little bit of a quieter episode compared to, say, episode two. But we have to get all of our players in the right places in order for this next, this you know, basically the second half of the season to play out. Like other seasons, this one is 10 episodes. So four might stand to be some amount of... Still a little buildup, you think? A little bit of buildup. Okay, yeah. all right. All right, I'm with you. I'm bad at math. That so. one's called Dear Offred. Oh. Dear Offred. Ew. Disgusting. <laughs> does, this, does she still have to be offered when Fred is offed? Um, you know, I mean, I could make all sorts of not correct statements that resonate with other stories that have been told about keeping people in their place when you've had them in their box once and you still think you have that over them. And you start calling them by their, by their old yeah, names. Yeah, yeah. I can see how that's happening. Okay, Let's jump into this because let's get right into the aftermath. We have June absolutely like shell-shocked, right, about what she saw on those screens. And her big question, we actually get an answer to. What is the color purple going on on Hannah? Like she's seen red, she's seen pink, but what is this purple dress? What is happening here? Were you surprised what the answer was for that? I was more surprised that Gilead is trying to some weird innovation within their very strict rules, color-coded rules about where you belong in society. I could see where anything that starts to skew red would be pretty scary. Yes. But then again, there was a sentence where she tries to make it sound like wife school is like the shittiest place you could send your daughter. I mean, out of all your choices in Gilead, I think wife school is probably the best place you can send your daughter. I think so, too. And I think it was clever to make it purple because, you know, it's blue and red make purple. So it is like exactly a halfway between really leaving the question open. Like, does this mean she's skewing towards being a handmaid or skewing towards being a wife? And and the answer is purples either. You know? Yeah. I mean, Nick might have part of the story, only part of the story, Ooh. you know, like maybe wife school is... Is, is actually, also a sifter. Yes, that's what I was getting at. Right, yes, exactly. I like, feel a sifting coming. Yeah, so you're purple coming in, but you're going to come out either red or blue. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I see what you're saying here. Okay, well, I guess it depends on how fertile you are. <laughs> Can't know. <laughs> Got to give him a little bit more time. So there's a couple of conversations here that happens between Moira and and june we have like this sort of pep talk conversation what do you feel about the vibe between these two ladies there's definitely a sense of like we're starting back at the beginning again in a lot of ways we haven't really moved forward where are we with these two like are you still are you loving moira are you like man she's just like periphery or what is going on no i i understand moira i understand moira you know she has settled into a safer life than she had before, where she can help people, help herself, feel fulfilled, live a life, help raise this girl, all very good things. And June is like... She's a, she's a, she's a chaotic she, one, that June. Yeah, she's almost like the Joker in the Dark Knight. 
Oh? Yeah. We, that where feels he's too like, strong, but okay. It's like, uh, he says something like, the dog chases the car, but he has no idea what he's going to do when he gets it. <laughs> right? Yeah. No, that's very true. Now, so do you think then it was wise for Moira to keep the fact that she knew there was like this group of resistors at the border who had been having some luck with getting in touch with people? She does and... not owe June that. Oh, she doesn't? No they're, way. They're BFFs. She should... But you don't owe your BFF. <laughs> These, these. You would keep this information from Goodwin, really. If Goodwin started That's like in, introducing Goodwin to that group, meant that a few episodes from now <laughs> they were probably all going to be gunned down just because of Goodwin's recklessness. Um, <gasps> yeah, I might keep them separated. Yeah. Okay. Wow. All right. So, like, out of the you know, because you're trying to do the greater good for your best friend, you're trying to think like you can't handle the truth. On this group of resistors, like, no. I think I owe something to them, wild. too. Yeah. Oh, you owe something to them, too. Okay, I see that. I see you. All right, so, but, you know, the information's out there. and they're, they're a community. Go. June's just one. That's true. They are a community. That's a good point, Paul. But you remember what Margaret Mead says. Well, she said so many things. They're just <laughs> clogging up my mind right now. I can't she think says, of the right quote. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed individuals can change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that ever has. Right. So, so, but that doesn't mean is... that June needs to know where they are. <laughs> <laughs> very, very true. Okay, so were you surprised to find out that Mayday exists? It is a real thing. It wasn't just this construct of hope that they had within Gilead that like, oh my gosh, somehow this Mayday, something exists. And that really Mayday is not this complicated FBI, whatever, spy ring, something. But it's really just like small groups of outlier people who acts very much like the Underground Railroad, just trying to get communication, trying to usher people from one safe place to another safe place. Were you surprised at any of this information? I was more surprised at the statement that June felt like she just made it up. Agreed. Because my understanding had been that people kept saying the name to her. Right. So is that a is that a glimpse into her mind in terms of like... Narcissism? Kind of. Or, or just her, her viewpoint has become so narrow... That she honestly believes that she herself dreamed up and made up Mayday when, if go back to the early episodes, you guys, all of these people talk to her about Mayday. How did she think that worked? Like she thought of it and then somehow like ESP'd it into their brain and then they talked to her about it. Like what the heck? Really strange that she thought she made it up. Yeah. I guess the concept of making up this idea that there were people waiting for you just outside of what you could see. There are people who are trying to save you. They're just right over the horizon. They're just right there. I guess I can understand the thought process of like, that's just hope. That's just trying to keep hope alive. That's okay. But the actual name and concept, Junie. Right. You know other people told you about that first. <laughs> yes. You know, I was really interested in some little small details when we met these people, like that they had the board of the people who they had saved. And it was done with such like a beautiful memorial. It was like a grid. It was well lit and it was like framed out. It was very nicely done. And then they have the board of the people who died trying to get these people out. And that board was chaotic pictures on top of one another with like pushpins through people's faces, just like pictures over on the top of pictures. And it represented to me like we have this idealized people who were saved, right? And it's all very clean looking to the eye. But 
what really happened behind the scenes is this chaotic mess of people who now have like pushpins through their faces because this is the reality. This is the messiness of what it actually took to get to this beautiful memorial board we have over here. It's overwhelming to see the contrast and difference uh, between what they could do and what they had to pay. It absolutely was. What did you think about the the eye that shows up and is like delivering the girl? And he says that like nail on the headline of like, I can't, I can't stick around here with you guys and get out because. I've got a family. And you can't leave them behind. I think that was deliberately put there for us. Well, that was the nail on the head to portion. Yeah. To foreshadow that she's itching to get back in there. I don't know. I mean, she's going to need a plan. She's got to have a plan. She just can't charge off willy nilly. She's going to need to get that thing removed off her ear. She's going to need some uh, disguises, you know, like a Barney Fife mustache. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it turns out they have weapons and explosions and stuff like that. Is this a situation where now that June's seen this stash, we're going to absolutely see her probably explode that exact outpost? (laughs) Half of these people are dead. Just just, just (laughs) because she showed up. (laughs) I like how you're like speechless. You're like... "Ah." I won't edit those out <laughs> because I love how you just, it's like, I can't say it fast enough. I'm afraid so. I'm afraid so. In the quest to get Hannah out, there's going to be a lot of uh, nameless red shirts that are going to fall. I think, yeah, that board is going to get like three inches thicker with like more pictures. And the thing too is those pictures were all like candids in a way that it was like just like one person's nose or eye or like half their face or something. I'm doing it. So that's why I'm turning away from the mic. I'm actually acting out like half a face on those photographs. Because, yeah, they were just nameless, faceless, practically people up on the chaos board. What's important to probably note about this is that although I am being uh, hard on June, I also fully understand that if I were June in that position, I don't think I would be so rational as to be like, well, you know, I can't do everything that I can possibly do because it's going to be bad for these people. I think I might also charge ahead like a bulldozer. A hundred percent. I mean, we never, ever can put aside the amount of abuse and insanity that June has been through. And so I understand that, you know, some of these things, even as she's processing them, I know we were joking about the concept of did she think she came up with Mayday herself. But I think even in processing these things, it maybe lets us know a little bit about like she's not even sure what's real and what's not real anymore and, and trying to kind of like we saw in, in a previous episode where she was like wanting to be in trouble with the Canadian government for having killed Fred because she's like longs for like the structure and like justice and that kind of thing. I think that there's something about her trying to continuously sort out the chaos in her mind of everything that's happened mm-hmm. that, you know, we can we can simply take her saying, you know, like I thought I imagined that or made it up or whatever as like she really can't make sense still of all the things that have happened. I mean. Which is understandable. Can you imagine running in the woods and being snatched like that and then living in this bizarro world and then getting out? It's, it's like all and crazy. caught again. Yes, it's all <laughs> freaking crazy. It's crazy. Getting shot a few times. Right, right. Just so all our listeners know, like zero shade on June overall as a survivor because she is 100% trying to do everything. And also we understand people like Moira who are like trying to keep like a fuzzy, warm blanket around her a little bit and being like, please don't hurt yourself. Both things are true. (laughs) What do you think of the line? I was lucky. And then the woman says, women always say that when they've done something extraordinary. 
humans say that when they do something extraordinary and they have any amount of modesty or humbleness to their nature. I understand it's a women's show, a woman wrote this episode, blah, blah, blah. Did it resonate with you or did it seem pandering? Because I'm fully on the pandering side. I think that a lot more women are quick to try to give credit to other people and to, to say things like, you know, oh, I was just in the right place at the right time or or those types of things. And and you're right, humans in general, maybe we don't have to split it down gender lines, but some people are going to say, yeah, I did it and I'm awesome and I'm successful. And that's right. I always knew I would be a winner, you know, like that kind of thing. And some people are going to say, I couldn't have done it without all the help of everybody else. And, you know, I was just lucky and all that kind of stuff. So I don't know. I mean, I think it's probably more common for women to be the ones who try to play it down when they have some big success. And I think that men don't typically play it down. They're typically like, that's right. They raise the trophy over their head kind of thing. So here's how I was able to like swallow the vomit in my mouth that I had when she said that line, which was, that in their world with Gilead having become a thing, the concept of those gender lines is probably much more split than it is now. And so her having been a political prisoner in Gilead and got kind of the bad end of it in Gilead, she's probably gone through a lot that would influence that statement away from possibly seeing that men could also be humble and share credit or anything like that because she hasn't seen it in a super long time. So June's big reason for being with Mayday is that she wants to get in touch with Nick. She thinks that we've got to check in on Hannah and we've got to get some intel on what's going on. What do you think of these sat phones and the fact that Nick could just talk in his living room? I was skeptical of that, especially when you combine later that he gets caught in the gazebo talking to Tuello. You know, Nick has played the game very successfully thus far, rising from driver slash I to low level commander, getting a wife or two in the meantime. He obviously knows how this situation works, but getting caught talking to Tawella, that's a bad call, Petey. And then talking in your living room on the on the regular wired phone or whatever, like also probably, I mean, we haven't seen a lot in this show relating to the surveillance state that could be going on in Gilead. But that doesn't mean we won't. We just haven't seen it yet. We should fully expect that it exists. Well, it's kind of willy-nilly because if you think about it, I mean, back at the Waterfords, they certainly did have like security and eyes and all that stuff, right? And that's how Nick came into play. So people were peeping on commanders and keeping an eye on everything. I feel like Nick should have been in like an office or something, not in sort of an open concept area. He should have been on lots of rooms, like a big bulky phone phone. out in a field. Oh, something where he wasn't going to be found on unless you were looking for him with a satellite. So do we think he's being is he playing a little too fast and loose? Like, is that what you're finding in this episode with Nick? Like, is he like really getting lined up to be like, what the hell? I'm positive that. He is on Mackenzie's keep an eye on this guy list. Yes. And Mackenzie's a lot higher place than he is. That conversation with Tuella was asking Mark to please not tell June about Rose and that Nick is now remarried and that, or I guess. A totally superfluous comment, really. I know. It was. Like like Tuella was going to race back to Toronto and be like, guess what, June? Your boyfriend's married. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, and also, I guess that the, um, also, I guess that it seemed too soap opera-y to me. There's too many fish to fry here. Like, like Hannah was just on the big screen up there, you know? I, I mean, I get it. I get it that I guess we're supposed to get drilled down that like Nick still has this level of feelings for June. He wants to be the one to break the news that yes. he's got a new woman in his life. And, yes. and you know what? I have to say, having met Rose now, I actually thought she was pretty cool. She seems with it. She seems well liked. And not in a grosso like Mrs. Putnam, like kind of like, you know, prim and proper kind of gross kind of way. But like she seemed cool, like like someone I'd want to be friends with. Yeah, and then she seems to function as a teammate with Nick, which is good because he's running a, a complicated game. The main thing about that conversation with Nick and June was that Nick cannot control, you know, what's going on with Hannah. He's not going to be able to get closer. He's not going to be able to save her from anything. Some of this stuff has to be, like, let go on June's part that, like, Nick can't do it. He's got other responsibilities now. He's not so big that he can operate above board doing things that would definitely catch other people's attention as being June oriented. Everyone knows who Agnes is. Right. Well, what do you think? You want to go talk about Serena over in Gilead and talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. All right. So speaking of that, we know who Agnes is. I really did not absorb the first time we watched this episode, the people at that table when they were having dinner. So we have Serena, we have Lawrence, we have the Mackenzies, who, if you guys remember, is Agnes slash Hannah's parents, and we have Nick and his wife. So these are like all parties connected to June. Mm -hmm. I swear to God, because this is like a core group, I really wasn't thinking of the Mackenzies as like, of course that's who you'd invite to dinner. It took me a minute to register why they were important. I knew he was an important commander. Even when they said that they was that they were like Hannah's parents, it was still like way too long for me to be like, if you have someone who's attacked one member of a family, wouldn't it be reasonable to bring together all other interested parties to come to the table and make sure that we're all doing what this the same thing. We're all aware of where everyone else is and you know how we're gonna keep each other safe. Like that is very logical. And boy did it go right over my head the first time. I just thought it was a, a high commander meeting because yeah. Serena's coming back. Right, yeah. I really did not absorb it. When Mackenzie made that awkward statement about men in power should have a wife or whatever that exact quote was, how did that sit with you? Well, I think because they have to project this commander plus wife and hopefully plus child ideal, then a single man in Gilead doesn't work. Because if you could have a bunch of single men who could be successful, then do you really need all these wives? Do you really need all these handmaids? Like, do you like, you know what I mean? Like, so it's about the presentation. I think so. I think okay. it's about the packaging. You know, it's supposed to be this like idealized family. And having a, like a single man is like, wait a minute. I thought the main focus of everybody was having babies. So you can't just be a single man out here. Okay. Like, that's not working. All right. I'll go with that. Because, I mean, functionally, wives have nothing to do in, in the Gilead society. Well, they raise the children after the handmaids have the babies. Other than that, they're very well, much... That's a, a pretty big job. Don't say but, other than that. No, no. But, I mean, Lawrence in particular, he's not child-rearing age anymore. I mean, look at the guy. But he's child-producing age. 
Okay. He's not rearing anything. I don't think any of the commanders are rearing any children, but I think that they're definitely, yeah. I mean, what? Tony Randall had kids in his 70s, Paul. <laughs> Fertile. So this whole grouping made a ton of sense to me. Their conversation about their concerns about June coming in and trying to do something to Hannah makes complete sense. I appreciate all of this conversation. How above board is the Nick sitch? Is Nick still coming to the table? Like, I mean, we know he belongs there because he has all these ties to June. But like, if I was the McKenzie's, I'd be like, what are you doing here? What's your tie to June? It's a great point. What's your need to be here? Because it is not well known. I mean, it's all assumed that that is Fred's baby, right? Of course. So why would Nick have a role here other than Lawrence kind of likes him? But I guess that's why Mackenzie seeing him talking to Twello is like, what are you doing here? (laughs) You know, like, what is your business here? Because certainly the Mackenzies don't know what role Nick plays in the June, Nicole, Serena saga, right? He can't. I can't. I can't believe they do. Although... Let's back up just a smidgeroo. Go for it. Last season, when in front of the international court, June was making her case against the Waterfords. Right. Didn't all that come out? Sure. About that Serena forced her to have sex with, wasn't Nick named at the time? I, I would agree with you. Yes. But at the same time, like, but so they're all just sitting around the table being like. Pass the tea. And you're the forced rapist. One like, lump or two. What? Like, what? What? I guess everybody's like at that cordial, weird, formal level where like, we're not going to talk about why you're here. We all know why you're here, I guess. But as a group, we have to talk about how keeping how to keep everybody safe. Okay. When you're talking about that marriage situation that Lawrence needs a wife. I mean, my gut instinct was, oh, shit, we're going to do like a full on two kingdoms marrying with Serena and Lawrence because... Serena doesn't have any interest in Lawrence. Lawrence doesn't have any interest in Serena. But if you get those two big lines together, this is a pretty big deal, I think. That was my first thought. We actually see quite a bit of how that plays out in this in this episode. But my second more haunting thought was all the talk about Hannah becoming a wife. And the only person that they're talking about needing a wife is Lawrence. To me, at this point, I feel like we're keeping the cast pretty small. We no longer have those lengthy lines of handmaids walking two by two, you know, going by and stuff. Most of these scenes are like a handful of these same people in like one room. So doesn't that mean it gets pretty incestuous like this where it's like, well, that has to be the person who it's probably going to end up with. I think you're on to something. It reminds me of all of the people that Sansa had to marry in Game of Thrones because it was sort of like punishing her like she had to marry Tyrion. Neither one of them wanted that. Tyrion didn't sleep in like the same room with her. He was grossed out by the whole situation that he was forced to. She was forced to. But it still created like this power play in the people who controlled them's minds that they were happy to do it to them. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And Lawrence, he wields more power than he did, but he's still not the boss. You know, I think Mackenzie's probably a higher place than Lawrence these days. But do you think Mackenzie would want to have almost have Hannah be with Lawrence then? Because they're the ones they're the ones complaining about the fact that Lawrence can't walk around single. Hannah or maybe well, I guess there aren't any other available wives out there, are there? Because I was thinking Well, we're kinda not talking to all the other wives. Like Mrs. Putnam comes into play into this one. But again, like I said, like our cash shrunk. We would have had a bunch of people. Esther would have been an obvious choice as potentially getting there. But what did they do? They put Esther 
oh, she should go with the Putnams because we only have this many people. I bet once you're a handmaid, you can't get upgraded. <laughs> no. <laughs> like like frequent flyer miles. No. You, you can't get upgraded to wife. No, I don't think so either. <laughs> I, th- I bet you can go the other way, but. Oh, I bet so. <laughs> yeah, I bet so. Which is, of course, going to be like a haunting thought for Serena. Esther did. Right. And that's going to be like a whole worry about Serena, right? Was that what if she gets demoted from wife to handmaid? So this was an interesting choice of what they ended up doing with Serena because she badly wants to stay in Gilead. She even gives like the whole kiss off speech to Mark. Like, you know what? I don't want to be in Canada. Like, this is, these are my peeps. I've counted all of these chickens. Yeah. They're still in eggs, mind you. Right. But as you see, I have plenty of chickens. And like, I'm embracing all these people like, oh, these are my people. I love them all. And they love me. Well, somewhere in the first three podcasts, I put forth this idea that she would be more powerful as a queen in exile oh. than she would in Gilead. Because as a woman in Gilead, she should be quiet. She cannot have a voice. Right. However, she is, for some reason, a Gilead true believer. She was one of the masterminds behind it. One of the uh, yeah, masterminds. She, she was, yes. She wrote the documents, apparently. Right. But there, nothing. Outside, they don't really know that. The rest of the world doesn't really know how Gilead functions. They have some ideas. There were some accusations that maybe Tuella was trying to peep it out while he was there. Right. Trying to yeah. understand the order of things. Right. We have a policy against having spies at dinner. I loved that. Yeah. The fact they made him stand outside, though, in the cold, <laughs> that's a whole other thing. But I thought that she would see the logic of being the queen in exile on her own rather than having it forced upon her. I am also going to throw out that once Fred is killed... And you have Serena with the potential of coming back to Gilead, right? If you're the Mackenzies, the last thing I would want to happen is for like the next like public enemy of June to move in next door. No, uh uh-uh. Send her back to Toronto and June can massacre her over there. (laughs) Because if we have Serena in Gilead, all that's going to happen is that June is going to constantly be trying to get into Gilead or constantly be trying to send someone into Gilead to kill Serena and snatch Hannah. But if we can at least separate them, put them in two different places in the world, then Hannah has got a better shot as far as the Mackenzies are concerned, you know, of actually staying safe and in Gilead. Now, I'm using the word safe because this is the, what the Mackenzies would feel is safe. And also, though, kind of safer in the sense of like, Trying to make a run with June, chances are both of them get killed. And Hannah has now grown up, I should say Agnes, because that is her name in the show, as in the Gilead world. She has grown up with the McKenzie's. I mean, we've seen those little moments where June has tried to have these little connections with her. And Agnes is freaked the hell out. You know, she's always like, who are you? Brah! You know? Yeah. Multiple times we've seen this. So it doesn't go well. So I think if I'm the McKenzie's, I probably come to the same conclusion. We know what June's capable of. And were you surprised that Commander McKenzie is basically calling for June to be like murdered instantly as soon as we can, as hard no. as we can? We kind of talked about that. We wondered last podcast whether or not they had the the reach to activate some foreign based operative to take her out. Do you think that's what's going to happen? Are they going to try to send someone? I mean, I would if I was them, but... We haven't seen any kind of like born identity level kind of stuff in this show so far, but why not? 
why the heck not? They've only got how many episodes until they're going to end the whole thing, right? See, you're so. thinking Born Identity, and I'm going. I'm a little bit going the other way. I'm not seeing it as Born Identity. I'm not seeing some man showing up to kill June. Mm. How many times have we seen those women standing outside supporting Serena? You're right. You're right. So who makes sense as being the next mob? Some, someone posing as a former handmaid. Mm-hmm. That's the only way to get close to June, actually. And then, <coughs> bad news bears. Good call, Caroline. That's what I see happening. Because you know why else? How many times has there been sort of that thought process of like, there's a special place in hell for women who don't help other women? So it's not going to be some commander or some commander's army or some sharpshooter man who comes against June. It's going to be a quiet woman who looks completely unassuming. And even June, knowing how unassuming she can look in order to get into places, she won't see this woman coming or women coming. That's like extra special hit, like horrifying, right? Mm -hmm. Speaking of horrifying, Paul, the moment when... We get this information that Moira knows that Serena's flying in on this private plane. And then we have this entourage of cars, right? Yeah. Coming on through. Now, I know you enjoy horror movies. I know you enjoy a good jump scare on TV. In real life. Hate them. Giant baby about it. Yes. We'll cry and scream and say, don't do that to me. Not that I know from experience. Mm-mm, no, not you. I've never, never jumped out or done anything. But. Far be it. On a screen, you're a fan, right? Mm-hmm. What do you think of the fact that. We slow the convoy, and all of a sudden, (laughs) June's face is at the window. Now, see, in another flavor show, if you can get that close to your mortal enemy, you fucking kill them. Oh, every time. You know, but not this show. No, no. She doesn't even like smash the glass or do something that you think would get even closer. I mean, was it truly just a threat? That's all she really wanted to do? The threat of, Serena? I can get to you if I want to, you mean? Or just the, like, don't you go by Hannah. If I'm Serena, once I kind of shake off the the adrenaline, Hannah all of a sudden becomes, like, half of my big board of things that I want to figure out how to fuck around with. And also my protective layer in some way. Maybe Hannah needs to be somehow a part of my sphere in some like, way. Uh, maybe she needs an internship in Toronto. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. Something. I I mean, you want to, you got to do something where you have a gun to Hannah's head at all times. Whereas like the second, like a hair on my head is bothered, your kid is dead. Like, it's just that simple. And we're going to tell you that. So then you can come lurking around screaming in the window but you can't really kill her like she's got to use hannah as some sort of protection right how she could do that would rely on her relationship probably with lawrence because he might be the only one that can kind of tolerate her or even gives her maybe the mackenzie's though are interested in having some sort of like because it's like co-security it's like if anything happens to serena or if anything happens to hannah in any like form or fashion like I don't know exactly how to say that better, but... Probably not the Mackenzies, because they don't want to kill their own daughter. No, not that they would kill their own daughter, but that they would have this threat out there. That they would be okay with June understanding there'd be some sort of threat. They're not going to kill Hannah, obviously. For anyone that's not keeping up, Agnes and Hannah are the same person. (laughs) I, I I tried to catch myself and try to explain that, but... My takeaway from that whole Serena bit there was that she did have the wherewithal to ask for staff and money and security. And the second her little car back in Toronto, 
the staff, the money, and the security seems meaningless. <laughs> June is right there. Good call. So I don't know what other plays Serena has besides Hannah. I mean, is there anything else? Nicole somehow figuring out a way to like try to get some sort of half custody or something of Nicole visitation rights with Nicole something. You might be onto something, but she's not a blood relative. But within Gilead, that's not how their children work. I'm just saying, like, you got to have something, right? Where's Maybe the more, leverage? Because she's still tied in with the international court system. That's, I assume. It sounds like she's living in the detention center still. Is yeah. going to go right back and live in there. And I don't know if that's IOC or, I think, that, is that the right acronym, IOC? Or is that the Olympics? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm the international courts, sure that's the Olympic or 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 if it's the American authorities operating in Canada, who she is the uh, detainee of. I definitely feel like Serena is going to like somehow militarize those fans because they bothered to have that moment where the camera like zooms in on a younger blonde woman, and Serena is like very thrilled to see this like twenty years younger Serena. Mm -hmm. out there and realizes like, oh, that's where my power lies. Right. And these ladies exactly. right here. And those are the people who I feel like got to put up on our big like a uh, cork board here as like, mm, they are the most likely assassins, right? We might even see that girl come back. I think we will. I don't think you zoom in on her just to throw her away as an extra. Plus, I think COVID testing, Paul. Just wise to keep them all together, right? So is there anything else in the Serena story that you feel like we really need to like hit upon? No. Before we leave there, what did you think about Mark and Serena still like sparks? I think that's a distraction. Could Mark be turned? No. You sure? Yes. Positive? Yes. But it's Serena. She's so powerful. Um, yeah, no. <laughs> Let's talk about another powerful woman, Aunt Lydia. Aunt Lydia. Boy, it takes a lot. To slap someone who's on life support. There's a lot of rage there. <laughs> if you're going to slap someone who's actively on life support. That was actually kind of a charging slap. She like walked from across the room to yeah. get some thrust. Momentum. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. That was pretty wicked. Damn, Lydia. Every time I think you can't do something more outrageous, you slap someone on life support. And I'm like, God damn. I've read the Testaments. Don't go too far because there's going to be a whole series on this and then no one wants to be spoiled. And once you told me that there was going to be a Testament series, then I'm starting to look for hints and clues about how we could get the Lydia that we've had that is so hard on these girls and such a true believer in the cause to become the Lydia in the book. Okay. And it's moments like these in this episode where she's doing a lot of acting with her face, uh, and out is, and she is making me think that she is reconsidering all aspects of everything about the way she does things, like her prayer for Janine's safe return, you know, is that she will change things. She's offering to God that she knows that she can do things better. I think that that could be a much broader interpretation than just things within the Gilead system. It could be a much longer game than that. I mean, certainly her love for Janine and her devotion to her. I know a lot of people are like, I don't get it. You know, she is so aggressive towards Janine and so much of the series, you know, and, and hurts her and does all these horrible things to her. 
But I think they've laid the groundwork that as absolutely whiplashy as it can be, for as much as she can be hard on Janine, she 100% has this like love motherly feel towards her. Janine may end up being a sacrifice that Mm -hmm. kind of the narrative demands in order to fully launch Lydia into another direction. I agree with that. I agree with that. The the steps that she took with the Putnams to have, you know, the baby be brought to Janine. I loved the tie back to Janine came and sat with the baby. And that's what got, you know, the baby through everything that that actually worked. And as much as Mrs. Putnam was not cool with bringing that baby in there. Like I had a choice. <laughs> <laughs> That's a Caroline 12-year-old comment that I That's what I said in my first day of school video. I think I was 13. My mom said, are you ready for first day of school? Caroline said, like I have a choice. <laughs> right, exactly. So Putnam, a.k.a. Caroline, brings the baby. I was happy that it worked for Janine. I was surprised, really, because... This um, is a poisoning. Yeah, I didn't know poisons could be cured by love. (laughs) (laughs) But I guess they can. I mean, it was a nice, it was a very nice. We should call poison control. (laughs) How much love if the dog has had eight pounds of chocolate? How much should I hug on the dog? (laughs) Exactly. I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I don't think it's far-fetched from the standpoint of like, is there something about being able to feel someone you love with you and all that stuff? Yes. But this seems oh so serious that like, I didn't think we could counteract poison with love. But I guess we can if it's if it's enough love. Janine seems pretty damaged, though. I mean, mm-hmm. when she was outside in the wheelchair. Still not quite with it. Not at all. And so if she's back, but she's the super damaged version of Janine, is that enough? Does she have to die? Or is it actually more compelling to Lydia if you have this super damaged version of Janine where she's like physically and now I have some probably some sort of brain damage and some other things going on here is having her actually live as like your poster person for like, you know, why the system doesn't work. You could twist the knife quite a bit with a living Janine. I think you could. I mean, this is going to sound gross, but but I'm putting on my Gilead commander's quaff here Uh because I haven't seen them wear hats. They might argue that even though she might have brain damage... Oh, no. That uterus still works, right? Oh, man. So seeing her go through something like that. Oh, boy. Yeah. Gross. Frankly, same with Esther. Yeah. I mean, just because she's on life support. Ooh, that could get super dark, y'all. And I think that those things, that could break Lydia. Like she might have been able to rationalize it in terms of like, having a ceremony and it's kind of ordained by God who gets a kid, blah, blah, blah. But if it just turns into a baby factory, a baby mill. Of like women in hospital beds? Yes. Yeah. That's pretty terrible. I mean, it's, (laughs) that's a pretty long way to need to have to go in order to change your mind about things. But at least maybe she'll get there. 
And that's where we want Lydia to get because, I mean, I, I think that we've always held on some sort of hope that with her having the reins and, and she still has pull. I mean, she got Mrs. Putnam to the hospital. She still has pull. So she is one of these, I'm going to say, quote, unique women is what they were calling, you know, Serena at the dinner, that there's really no place for them in Gilead. I think that they 100% exist in Gilead currently. They just can't be recognized in any way. Like, obviously, Lydia has power, lots of power. But there's going to have to be some sort of way that she can transform and become this other version of Lydia. But I think I want her to stay within the system. Like, I don't necessarily want that Lydia to, like, get on a plane and fly to Toronto. You know, like, I want the transformation, but I want the transformation to stay somehow in the system and try to, like, do something about what's going on. I think you'll be in luck. (laughs) Well, I hope that's true. Do you have any predictions for what's coming next? I think the little pot lid on June's ability to cope is bubbling over. It's like, ding, 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 ding. it's like, it's like uh, she's not going to be able to handle herself knowing that Hannah's in this situation. The Serena's right here within my grasp. There's these warrior women out on the border that, that I can now deal with. Something is going to burst in her. and we're, I don't know which direction she's going to want to go first, but Serena's right here right now. So I think the bubbling is going to like, I think the tea kettle goes like when that baby's born, when Serena has that baby, which is it's got to be soon. She's been pregnant a long time now. Right. It's got to be soon. But when there's a moment when June sees Serena with like this little baby, like on Insta, total, total Gilead.com. Like that, yeah, I think it's going to be like, don't you think that's going to be it? Where her brain just goes like, like this woman cannot have a child. What if she calls it June? I was just totally thinking about what would be the knife in the side? What if she names it like Luke? (laughs) Like I was trying to think of all the names. That's funny that we were like totally on the same page. She'll probably name him Mark. This is Caroline. This is Paul. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.